0: You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of his kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood. Welcome back. At this point, we're a few episodes deep in our exploration of the basics of Christianity, what we believe, and how we live as a result. I'd like to remind you, the audience, that I would love to hear your take on what those basics are, what you think are the most fundamental truths that a new believer really should lay hold of, and also what essential questions you have about the faith. Please feel free to submit that feedback using the contact information in the show notes. All suggestions are welcome. Please and thank you. Okay now, so for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the purpose and mission of Christianity, how we're called to love and glorify God, and how the ultimate goal is to be disciples who make more disciples. In this episode, I'd like to look at the other directive that Jesus gave at the end of his time here on earth, that we should, quote, proclaim the gospel to all creation. By the way, that's found in verse 15 of the last chapter of Mark. At face value, this seems like a pretty simple task, aside from maybe the word gospel itself which is just Old English for the good news. So, tell the whole world the good news. Great. Got it. Or so we think. Oftentimes, we walk away from that commandment feeling confident that we know what to do, right up to the point when we're supposed to deliver the message, and then suddenly our minds go blank. For me, it's like being sent to the store without a list of what it is I'm supposed to buy. You know, you get there and you start thinking, what am I here to get? Was it milk? Was it lumber? I don't know. I know I'm in the right place and I have more or less the right activity in mind. I'm supposed to buy something. But beyond that point, there's a crucial piece of information that's missing, and it's the content. We know as followers of Jesus that we're supposed to proclaim something to the world, and we know it's definitely something good because it's called the good news. But we never actually discuss what the content of that gospel message is. So today I'm going to talk about that, and hopefully I can clarify it somewhat, both for you and for me. Much of the language that's used surrounding our proclamation of the gospel message, both in the Bible and among Christians today, is borrowed from Roman-era legal proceedings. It's the terminology of the courtroom. We Christians are called to testify as witnesses as those who know God and who have seen and experienced his work in our lives firsthand. In fact, our testimony is pretty much the only way that the rest of the world can know who he is and what he's done. In a courtroom, when a witness is called to give their testimony, they take an oath before they begin. We've all seen this happen so many times on TV and in the movies that we can probably all rattle off that oath without really even thinking about it. I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I'd like to take that wording and use it as an outline to explain what the gospel message is, and perhaps more importantly, what it isn't. We want to make sure that what we proclaim, the testimony that we give to an anxious and waiting world, is accurate to the best of our knowledge. That means that the gospel you present can and should include your own experience. But whatever you do, don't embellish it. I used to lead the youth group at my church, and one time we had a teenager come and tell us that God had set him free after 20 years as a drug addict. Looking back, I think he was about 16 at the time, so you probably won't be surprised that nobody believed anything he said after that. Embellishing the good news with a lie harms our credibility as witnesses, so don't do it. Basically, the gospel message that we believe and that we preach should be true. I enjoy the sometimes brutal honesty that the biblical writers displayed, often to their own shame, when they wrote down the story of Jesus. Instead of making themselves out to be the heroes of the story, they freely admitted when they had their doubts or that they were slow to understand Jesus, and that they were still flawed human beings who make mistakes. Nothing was whitewashed here, and that helps me to trust what they said. There are plenty of conflicting messages out there in the world today, and they can't all be true. So, how do we figure out which ones are false? First, it's important to be wary of any message that contradicts the information we have in the Bible. Now, for that, you have to know what the Bible says, and I promise I'll talk more about that about four episodes from now. Another thing to watch out for is that the most insidious false gospels usually involve some sense that I'm still in control or that I can acquire all the benefits of a relationship with God without ever surrendering to him as Lord and King. Sometimes that comes in the form of what we call works righteousness, the idea that you can earn your place in God's kingdom on the basis of your own hard work and deeds, that we can tip the scales of divine justice through our own noble effort, without ever needing to humble ourselves before God and ask for his forgiveness. Another false gospel is that God provides everything we need or want in this life, the so called health and wealth benefits, and we have to obtain them simply by declaring the right words about ourselves and in our lives. Maybe the simplest false gospel is the idea that everybody is automatically included in the good news or that all roads lead back to God, when that simply is not the case. False gospels can be so easy to fall for. Precisely because they usually contain a nugget of biblical truth, with just a little bit of heresy sprinkled on top, like arsenic on an ice cream sundae. Does God want everyone to be included and forgiven? Of course he does. But that's not possible outside of a relationship with him. Does he want to provide for our needs and bless us with health and wealth, among other things? Definitely. But we need to go to him for those resources rather than to the universe or trusting in specific magic words to save us. Finally, does God want us to live righteously? Absolutely, he does. But we still need forgiveness for the times we get it wrong, and only he can provide that. Honestly, the best defense you can ever have against false gospels is to know the true gospel, in all its fullness. Usually those heresy sprinkles are custom designed to fit in the gaps where something else was left out, and if you have the real thing, you're far less likely to be fooled by a substitute. That's why an incomplete gospel is also a dangerous thing. Maybe it's not quite as bad as the poison of outright falsehood, but if you're missing something in your understanding, you'll end up malnourished at best, unable to grow as a Christian. And at worst, you'll go looking for something to fill the holes with. Knowing the truth, the whole truth, will help us adhere to nothing but the truth, so help us God. In light of that, for the rest of our time in this episode, I'd like to put several incomplete Gospels together. And I'm hopeful that when we're done, the result will be something very close to the full package. So first, let's look at the four works of literature called the Gospels that were included in the Bible. On the most basic level, the gospel can be defined as the story about Jesus. It's his birth, his life, the things he did and said. And certainly it's his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. The Bible contains four different versions of that same story. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because those are our best guesses as to which of Jesus' early followers wrote each one. Technically, these books are called the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, etc., because it's their version of the events that unfolded around 2,000 years ago surrounding the man named Jesus. The short version of that story, if you put all four authors together, is that we needed God to intervene in human history because we had issues. That intervention came in the form of Jesus, fully human so that he had a right to stick his nose in our problems. And yet, also fully divine, so that he actually had the power and authority to do something about those problems. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and along the way he performed some miracles and taught us a few things. At the end of the story, he died a horrific death at the hands of wicked men, but then he came back from the dead, and finally he went back to heaven with a promise to come back someday. I want to be clear here that the information in the four Gospels is very, very good news. It's good that Jesus came. It's good that he did what he did. And the gospel message does contain biographical material. For sure, it's important that we're specific about who Jesus is and what he did for us. But on the other hand, I don't think that Jesus intended for us to go through all the world and simply tell a story, even if it's his story, without giving any of the background information or the implications behind that story. In other words, the who, what, when, and where are important, but not without the why. For that reason, the four Gospels are part of the Gospel, but they're not the complete message. If you ask most Christians today what makes the story of Jesus good news, they'll focus on what I call the sin problem. When God made the universe, he made it to be perfect and then he created humans both to be the recipients of his goodness and love and also to serve as his representatives in creation. Before too long, we decided that we could do a better job without God's supervision and guidance, and in that moment we all became infected with sin, which is the human tendency towards selfishness and rebellion against God. Because God is righteous, because he's a good king, he can't just let us off the hook for that any more than we can let murderers and thieves run amok in our society. Part of good leadership means enforcing laws, carrying out the justice that evildoers rightly deserve. And the Bible says that the punishment deserved by sin is death. So, spiritually, we're all on death row, counting down the days until our sentence is carried out. Fortunately, there's a loophole. If a perfectly righteous person were to die in our place, Thereby taking the punishment for our sin upon himself, we would be free to go. The debt would be paid. That's exactly what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. He took care of our sin problem by taking our sin problem. Essentially, he said, this is mine now. I'll deal with it. All we have to do is accept that we need his help and that we can't fix the problem ourselves. We have to trust him to forgive us. Unfortunately, most of the world is still walking around either denying that we have a problem in the first place, or trying to crawl out of it themselves. When we insist on being evaluated according to our own righteousness, then the justice system of God says that's exactly what we get, and we always come up short. If we try to plead not guilty, he's perfectly righteous to throw the book at us. But if we just plead guilty, and fall upon the mercy of the court of heaven, then we will get mercy every time. For most people, that's the extent of the gospel message. Jesus came and died so that we could escape from eternal punishment. That's great news, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus didn't just set us free from the penalty that sin demands. He also freed us from the compulsion to keep sinning. When we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, he gives us a new heart and a new will. He promises to renew us from the inside out, and part of that benefits package is that we are no longer obligated to sin. We're free now, and we're forgiven. To add to that, we can now enjoy a renewed relationship with God without all that sin keeping us from experiencing or understanding His love. In short, we've been given a new life. I could do a whole season of episodes just on what Jesus accomplished on our behalf at the cross and through his resurrection, examining all the different ways of looking at it, and maybe I'll do that one day. It's truly amazing, and I'm grateful. And to be clear, nothing I say for the rest of this episode is meant to downplay the amazing mercy that we've been offered. But this still isn't the whole gospel. When mankind was placed in charge of the universe, and when we rebelled against God's guidance and leadership, we took all of creation with us. We took everything, including ourselves, that God had just said was very good when he was done making it, and we twisted it all until it snapped. There's a reason that the loss of innocence and the corruption of a perfect world, paradise lost, if you will, is a recurring theme in the literature of most cultures. I'm convinced that, on a fundamental level as a species, we're still dwelling on it all these generations later because we understand that the aftermath that we live in day after day isn't what was intended for us. Death, disease, and depression were unknown in the world before sin happened. It's not just that we became subject to a punishment that would come to us in a theoretical future that's still way off on the horizon. No, on that day, for all practical purposes, humanity created hell on earth. So God doesn't just promise us salvation one day when we all get to heaven. The Greek word used in the New Testament that most English Bibles translate as salvation or saved is the verb root sozo, and don't worry, that won't be on the test. But this word in Greek includes a vast array of ideas beyond just being saved from punishment. It's not just forgiveness. Part of what Jesus is offering us by way of his death and resurrection is relief from some of the consequences of sin in the here and now. Just think about the miracles he performed. When some of his followers were starving, he multiplied food for them. When someone was sick, he would heal them. When his friend Lazarus died, Jesus called him out of the grave and he lived again. A lot of the miraculous things Jesus did were incredibly practical. They answered the needs that he saw around him. As his disciples, as people called to emulate him and to do the things he did, our job is also to reverse those effects, such as by feeding the hungry, and even by performing some of those miraculous feats ourselves. A full understanding of salvation includes forgiveness, plus freedom from sin, plus healing, plus emotional and relational wholeness, plus resurrection and life everlasting. But there's even more to the gospel than our own salvation. And that brings us to what the Bible calls the gospel of the kingdom. The fullest meaning of what Jesus did on the cross and in rising from the dead was to inaugurate himself as the indisputable king of the universe. You see, this falls more in line with the way the word gospel was used in the ancient world than anything else we've already discussed in this episode. When a new emperor would come to power, or if Rome would conquer a new region, they would send out messengers to proclaim the good news that this new rule had begun. So when the earliest Christian writers used the term Gospel, they were using intentionally political vocabulary, and they knew that they would be understood as proclaiming the beginning of a new era under a new and eternal Caesar. In a nutshell, their Gospel is this. Jesus is in charge of everything, completely and forever, and his leadership is perfect and we can trust him to set right everything that went wrong under the previous administration. And that's truly good news precisely because it includes all the other facets of the gospel that I mentioned earlier. It's not just that God would spare us from hell or temporarily repair our bodies, or even that he would encourage us when we face life's difficulties. God promises to do all of that and more. Literally anything you can think of that's currently broken falls under his jurisdiction as Almighty King, so you can trust him to do something about it. That's our own sin, it's sickness in our bodies and in our minds, it's twisted relationships, both with ourselves and with others. It's even the environment, war, poverty, racism, corruption, you name it, God promises to fix it one day, when Jesus returns. When we hear that kind of all-encompassing gospel, our loyalties are questioned, because we are the previous regime, that he is actively in the process of overturning so we have to ask ourselves will we faithfully cling to the old administration the old way of doing things out of stubbornness choosing to die rather than surrender or will we take ourselves off of the throne and submit to the authority of the true rightful king in other words do we believe that his sovereignty over our lives and over our world is genuinely good news And is he qualified to have the final say on what, or who, is right or wrong? Do we believe that he's good? And are we capable of changing our definition of goodness itself to match his definition? Now, I want my answers to all of those questions to always be yes. But I'll be the first to admit I don't always get it right. I'm notorious for still wanting to be in charge of my own destiny. But even that is something that he promises to make right in due time, and he's always faithful. In closing, for most Christians, I've noticed that our awareness of the why behind Jesus' life, death, and resurrection doesn't really go much further than the benefits that we can get out of it. One more time, I want to be clear here that those benefits are a big part of the gospel. It's absolutely true that Jesus came to save us from the penalty that our sin deserved, He did come to heal our diseases, to set us free from evil, and to give us hope and a thousand other very good things. I'm more grateful for those benefits than I can ever describe to you, but the gospel is fundamentally not about us. It's about God and the fact that he is the good news. At this point, I'm going to leave you to chew on that for the next week. So far this season, we've talked about a lot of the theological content, the core values and message that Christianity is about on paper. But next week, we'll start delving into the more practical aspects, starting with community. Please join me then. And meanwhile, have a great week. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. Conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.